Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're interested in losing weight or in maintaining your current weight, this episode is for you. My guest, Dr. Richa Middle, is the founder and medical director of Radiant Health Weight Loss and Wellness in Frisco, Texas. As an internist and diplomat of the Board of Obesity Medicine, she provides weight management and preventative health services. Dr. Middle's unique program uses an integrative approach that treats the whole person, combining specialized medical care with customized nutritional guidance, mindset, and health coaching. She's passionate about addressing her patients' needs holistically by treating the medical, social, emotional, and lifestyle aspects of their lives in order to help her patients achieve lifelong health. I've been a fan of Dr. Middle for quite some time, so as I usually do, I had about a thousand questions for her. And as you'll see, she answers all of them graciously and thoroughly. I learned so, so much, and I know you will too. Do me a favor. As you're listening and learning, take a selfie, post it to social media, and tag me at The Health Investment. I love seeing photos of you in action as you soak up my latest episode. All right, it's time to hear everything Dr. Middle has to share. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of The Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Mittal. Thank you so much for being here with me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I can't wait for everyone to learn from you today. Thank you so much for having me, Brooke. It's a pleasure to be here. So would you start by sharing with everyone your story, your background, specifically what led you to specialize in weight loss? Sure. So it's kind of a roundabout story, but basically my background is in internal medicine and I was working in the hospital setting and the outpatient setting. And many, many years ago, I was doing that. And then I came across the field of obesity medicine and the concept of medical weight loss. And I became very interested in that because I always had an approach that was very focused on prevention. And I've always been very passionate about lifestyle and food and nutrition. And so when I started to do some work related to medical weight management, I found it to be very rewarding. I was helping people to not only feel good about themselves, but also reversing a lot of their chronic medical conditions, which, you know, we see in our practice day in and day out complications of excess body weight leading to things like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, heart arrhythmia, sleep apnea, 
cancers, you know, just to name a few. So for me, it was that interest initially that led me down the path. And then years later, I, you know, through the years, of course, started focusing my interests and reading on, you know, areas related to this. And then I uh, became board certified in obesity medicine. And my practice and my philosophy is a little unique in that area that I also meld in a lot about lifestyle medicine and have a more integrative and holistic approach because I think that people are a whole person and really all the different systems and all the different things in their life need to be uh, working towards the same goal. So that is my journey. And I, uh, as a culmination, or at least the start of the next journey was that I opened up my own medical weight management practice a year and a half ago here in the suburbs of Dallas. And I've been able to um, offer a very comprehensive, personalized medical weight loss program to people. And I incorporate health coaching and it's all very personalized. And um, it's been an amazing experience so far to be able to practice medicine in a different way. So when you were doing internal medicine, did you have your own practice as well? No, I didn't. I actually used to work in the hospital setting. So I took care of people who were very sick. Uh And then I also did outpatient medicine. I did um, a little bit of preventative health. I did executive health. So a lot of different areas of outpatient medicine after the inpatient experience. Uh, But I have never owned my own practice before. So that in itself could be subject of a podcast. Yeah, (laughs) sure. I know. Get all those business podcasts out there. And (laughs) I'm sure that you have great stories about that as well. So let's dive right into the topic of weight loss. Um, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this idea that there's a movement out there of the healthy at every size, the intuitive eating, kind of this whole circle of people who are saying that you can be healthy no matter what your weight and weight loss is superficial and something that people should never focus on. What are your thoughts or your what's your response to that movement? I don't know if people ever contact you from that movement. I know they contact me if I ever mention weight loss, but what do you say about that being healthy at any size? So I agree that people are beautiful at at every size. I think people are worthy at every size and we should never judge people based on body weight or really any other attribute. Um, I disagree with the statement as a blanket statement that health at every size because I think that, you know, a lot of times maybe they just haven't developed a health issue yet, but we do know that, um, you know, statistically speaking, uh, people who carry excess body weight and in the form of body fat are at an increased risk of conditions like a lot of the ones that I just mentioned. Um, So I think that we should be coming at it from an approach of health, and, and that's why it does require that approach to have a medical evaluation or to know where you are as far as where you stand with your risk factors related to your health in terms of of weight. I don't think that uh, body weight is the end all be all as far as a measure of health, but it is one of the measures of health. And so um, you know, I I hope that answers that. It's uh, I think it's more complicated than uh, just okay. You can be unhealthy and have a normal body weight. That's also true, right? 
Um, And so I think that we have to look at things not in a vacuum. It's not just about your weight and what the scale says, but it's a lot more. Um, But I do think that um, for the most part, um, even in, and there are studies going on, um, it's called obesity um, without metabolic complications. But a lot of times we do see that on the uh, on a metabolic level, and if you do lab tests and go deep, uh, even the people who have obesity who may not be showing signs of a complication yet, perhaps have more inflammation and are at risk, even for the physical aspects of carrying excess weight like osteoarthritis um, and sleep apnea. So, you know, there can be other complications, even though they may not be seeing them quite yet. So when you say excess weight and the excess weight that puts someone at risk for all of the things that you mentioned, as well as more, is there kind of a magic number of excess weight? Is it if somebody's 20 pounds overweight or 30 pounds overweight, that that's when it starts to become a real health issue? Or is it tough to say? There's not a magic number, but because we don't have that type of magic number, there's a lot of different ways where you can gauge whether excess body weight and excess body fat might be contributing to problems. So number one, everyone's familiar with BMI. Mm -hmm. And basically, that's a measure of your weight versus height. And those are kind of standardized. Um, They're not really looking at ethnicity. Those are just kind of um, the same for everyone. And that's a good place to start. Um, Typically, a BMI of 25 to 29.9, that is considered overweight. A BMI over 30 is considered obesity. I don't think that's the only measure. Um, Other things that people can look at is body fat percentage and specific body fat percentage cutoffs um, are associated with a diagnosis of overweight or obesity. Other ways, and especially this is important for certain ethnicities, uh, like Asian people, Hispanic, they tend to have a higher risk of diabetes and metabolic problems, even at a normal BMI. So just wrap your head around that for a second. You know, when we're talking about a magic number or a magic BMI, that isn't the case for a large part of our population. And so what we look at there is checking labs to look for signs of pre-diabetes or diabetes or high cholesterol. Maybe they've developed high blood pressure. And then the other thing that I do in my practice, and I urge you know everyone to be doing this when they go to see their doctor, is to actually check a waist size. So checking waist circumference, um, and typically that's best measured at the level that's at the highest point of your hips, like if you were to put your hands on your hips. But if you want to keep it easy, you can also just do it at your belly button. And certain cutoff points on that, and I can go through them, but they're a little bit different for each each ethnicity. I think it's 36.5 inches for men um, and 31.5 inches for women above that there's an increased risk of metabolic problems like the diabetes that we were talking about. So not a magic number, but we have many different numbers that we can look at. And then if somebody is diagnosed with prediabetes, would you say that's as serious as somebody being diagnosed with diabetes? Or how do you kind of differentiate between that? That's a great question. So to me, it's the same thing. Okay. But, and, and I'll tell you why, because it's on a spectrum, right? So when we look at a person who is, say, starting to develop prediabetes, 
we know that it takes about six to seven years during that process where they might not have even been diagnosed as prediabetes to now to prediabetes and then to diabetes. The only difference is that the blood sugar cutoffs are different when they're getting their blood work done. So a fasting blood sugar um, of over 100 is considered prediabetes and then over 120 is considered type 2 diabetes. And we are talking about type 2, not type 1. Now, when you look at that, you know, when a person is say, getting to the cutoff where their blood sugar is over 100, I get concerned because I know where it's going if we don't do anything about it. And so that's why, to me, it's the same. However, um, you know, when you look at the complications down the line, the longer a person's been in that state, the more complications you're going to think about. And in addition to heart disease, we also worry about what is called microvascular problems. So things like eyesight loss, kidney damage, peripheral nerve damage that happens from having uncontrolled high blood sugar. It's going to be more severe if they've been in a diabetes state than in a prediabetes state. Um, So, you know, that's one thing. But to me, it's really kind of the same condition but just on a spectrum of blood sugars, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is that a more recent term prediabetes or has that always existed? It has always existed. Um, I think that a lot of times, you know, I'll tell you that when people come to my practice, they, you know, they're focused more on, on the medical weight loss aspect or the preventative health aspect Maybe they have polycystic ovarian syndrome or they're at, they have a high family history of diabetes. And so they're concerned about it. A lot of times when we check their blood work, they may not be even quite meeting criteria, even for prediabetes yet, but we can catch things earlier and certain things go along with that. And those are, if a person has been noticing that their waist is getting larger, a lot of times that's indicative of Um, increased amounts of what's called visceral fat, which is the fat that we store around our our, uh, abdominal area and our organs. And that increases risk for diabetes down the line. Um, Maybe they have the strong family history, like I mentioned, or they have certain conditions or their blood work, which I do at the initial visit. Often I will check an insulin level in a person to see are they having signs of something called insulin resistance, which can set them up as a risk factor for having diabetes or prediabetes. The other thing that I, uh, you know, will look at is on their labs, if they have other signs like increased numbers of what are called triglycerides or low levels of HDL, which is good cholesterol, um, or if they have developed, um, you know, uh, any like I said, high levels of insulin. When we put that together, those conditions together are all called metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome is really what kind of leads to this increased risk of prediabetes, diabetes, diabetes, and then all the other complications. So um, to answer your question, it's it's not a new term, but I think it's, um, you know, a focus of a lot of us who are focused on the prevention aspect. I see. So you mentioned genetics. How much do genetic factors come into play when it comes to being overweight or obese? Is that a big factor? It is a factor. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to uh, pinpoint. 
You know, we oftentimes will come across a person who's struggling with their weight and they say, you know, everyone in my family has had problems and we may not be able to pinpoint a specific gene. There are a few genetic conditions that uh, do predispose uh, people to um, obesity. But a lot of times when, uh, you know, people are giving their history and talk about the fact that many people in their family have struggled, it could be that there's a genetic factor But then how often is that also that maybe as a family, there were certain nutrition habits or certain lifestyle. And so sometimes it's hard to tease out. But yes, there are genetic factors involved and they've done, you know, there are studies being done in that area and we're learning more and more all the time. So yes, there is a component, um, how much, how often, and who is a little hard to differentiate sometimes. So when someone comes into your clinic, maybe they think, you know, they do have genetic factors coming into play, or maybe maybe it's true, maybe not. Like you said, maybe it's just sort of an inherited lifestyle or ideas about nutrition. Do you find that pretty much anyone can lose weight, or are there other factors like hormones and things that come into play as well? Yeah, so it is definitely multifactorial, and you have to look at each person as an individual and really try to get to all the different factors that could be going on. Um, I will say that, you know, I, especially for the people who maybe have been carrying a lot of weight for a long time and they've been struggling and they've tried a lot of different things and it can be a very uh, frustrating uh, type of experience for them and they've yo-yoed. I always uh, mention to them that, you know, your body has a set point and no matter what the reason is why it's happened, now this has occurred And it becomes harder and harder to lose weight as we've been carrying around more and more body fat. And um, I will go into why that is in a a moment. But I always mention to them that there is a thing called a set point. And it's a point that your hypothalamus, which is a part of your brain, decides that it wants to keep your body weight at. And it's kind of like that number where you just know my body seems to want to just stay at this number, you know, that's your set point. Mm. And so often we're working against that, which is why I try to take that, you know, that kind of thinking uh, of that self blame or that, you know, no matter what I do, kind of take that away and off that person. This is a medical condition. And we need to treat it that way. And so that means that with the, the nutrition, the lifestyle, the movement, the stress management, the sleep, looking for complications that of, of the weight, or even having other medical issues that might be contributing to weight gain, looking at what medications they're on, and could those be causing weight gain, um, and affecting that set point, because our, um, our bodies are very good at maintaining things. And so often, when I tell that person, you know, this is not all you. and it's not at all in your control. And let's work to optimize all these things. And yes, definitely nutrition and all the other things I mentioned are important. But let's talk about medication, because this is also another tool that we can use. And sometimes those tools are medication, sometimes they're bariatric surgery. And we need to look at the person in front of us and then work with them to kind of figure out that plan based on what's going to be the most effective for that person. But it is possible um, to lose weight, but it's not really about, like I said, the weight as much as the health. And I like to make that the focus. Yeah. 
for sure. What are some of the biggest misconceptions out there about weight loss or weight gain that you see, I don't know, flying around social media or other places? Maybe you've touched on a few, but others that you see? There's a lot. Um, So number one is these quick fix kind of uh, diets that we hear about or um, kind of like detoxification products and teas and supplements and, uh, you know, these guarantees of, hey, you know, drink this tea and you'll lose 20 pounds in one month or whatever. Um, There's a lot of stuff there. And um, I feel very protective towards people who are dealing with this problem because they're, you know, typically my patients. And I know that people are vulnerable when they're dealing with this. And then there's a lot of this stuff out there. And, um, you know, it is very easy to fall for them and kind of fall into like a yo-yo type of pattern where you lose and regain, lose and regain. That's not only bad for your health, but it's bad for your psyche and your emotional health and just everything. Um, so there's a lot of stuff out there like that. You know, a lot of times people will mentioned to me like a, uh, you know, keto, uh, carnivore, um, you know, there's so many different types of nutrition plans and diets out there. And I think that you have to look at everything and again, go, well, what's going to be possible for me to first of all, stick to long term. And that is probably the key. And then of course, you know, fine tuning it to uh, really include uh, nutrition and what's going to sustain you in, in, in the long term is important. But uh, there is a lot of stuff out there and that guarantees a quick fix. And really, there's not a quick fix to this. It didn't take you a minute to get there and it's not going to take a minute to reverse it. Um, but there are definitely, you know, options out there, but you have to kind of be smart about it. Yeah, I th- I feel that Amazon with its two-day shipping and Uber Eats and DoorDash, all these things now where with a click of a button, we can get things instantaneously. I don't think that's helped necessarily when it comes to these things that take longer and that You're are right. really a process. Yeah. I mean, I think as a society, we kind of want everything right now. And, but I will say that for a person who's been dealing with it for a long term, I can also understand how, you know, they're just kind of like, oh my gosh, like maybe this is the next thing that's going to work, you know? Um, So I do get that, but I think that, um, you know, there's, uh, there is no quick fix. Definitely. You mentioned keto and carnivore. So I'm curious, is that something that you think is a helpful choice for some of your patients? If it's something that they can sustain long-term, where do you fall on the keto, low-carb, carnivore, those kind of buzz fad diets or whatever you want to call them? Sure. So I think anything could be termed a fad if you were going to be a doing it for a temporary period of time. And number two, if you were eliminating whole food groups, I don't believe that that that's a sustainable strategy. Um, I do use a low carb approach with people who that would be appropriate for. Um, And I do think that there's uh, data to suggest that people who have pre-diabetes or insulin resistance um, or type 2 diabetes, you know, they can have a healthful meal plan that is low carb that doesn't necessarily need to eliminate carbohydrates as a food group because it's not really about um, just the carbs, but about which ones are you choosing. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, really kind of starting out with the basic of any nutrition plan 
needs to be low in processed foods and sugar. And I know maybe sometimes that sounds obvious, but it's a very um, pervasive thing in our in our in our society. And you know, we we have those foods probably more than we need to, right? And they're also addictive, and they give us a sugar high and all of that. So, you know, right off the bat. Um, eliminating as much as possible that doesn't it's not realistic to think that we're never going to enjoy a uh, you know a cupcake or whatever at a at a child's birthday party or at our own birthday party or something like that but for the most part yes you uh, can have a healthful low carb um, I also believe in a plant forward approach mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that a person needs to be completely plant-based but we need to be eating real food. We need to be eating more vegetables, more fruit, some whole grains, and um, healthy fats like the ones that are mentioned in the Mediterranean type of diet. So, uh, you know, things like avocado, nuts, um, you know, things that are in their whole uh, form, if you will, of monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. And so, yeah, you know, to answer your question, I think that a person can do a ketogenic type of diet. And I do often have patients on a nutritional ketosis type of plan, but we don't eliminate everything. Um, we, we do keep that in there. And you can have health benefits and be able to stick with something and have it be effective without getting down to, you know, 10 grams of carbs a day. <laughs> Definitely. And I think going back to what you were saying about the detox teas and things, one thing that really bothers me is all the big food companies that have started to put keto or low carb or whatever on all the packaged foods. And it's just so misleading because I think somebody is trying to make a helpful choice and thinking, oh, this is keto or this is low carb. I'm going to buy this. But really, it's just some chocolate bar that's filled with a bunch of crap And it's just kind of looping right back to where you started, like you were saying, with the processed foods, not focusing on the vegetables and the healthy fats and the whole foods. Exactly. And, you know, one thing that we talk about, and I'm sure you heard of is, you know, shop the periphery, right? You don't really need anything from the middle of the grocery store, except for maybe lentils, beans, maybe some, some whole grains and some nuts. But other than that, everything else is on the periphery. And that's something to really think about is, you know, cutting down the package process stuff and, you know, have a few kind of go-tos that you incorporate here and there because we all need it. We all need convenience. I get that. Um, but really trying to focus as much as possible on um, food that came in its natural state is a, is a great place to be and to live long term. What do you think about intermittent fasting? Are you a fan of that? I am. So I do incorporate um, intermittent fasting regimens, not only in my own life, but with my patients. And you do need to uh, discuss and get an idea about them because you don't want to necessarily use it in everyone. Um, Certain groups like people who have had eating disorders or are... um, you know, tend to have kind of a binge eating type of pattern. I don't typically recommend fasting type of regimens for them, but otherwise I am a huge proponent of it. And I actually find that the best and most sustainable approach, and especially for the people who say have had success with keto, but 
it was just unsustainable. And they were also eliminating food groups that I thought they should have, like, you know, vegetables and fruit and things like that, was to actually combine a low-carb Mediterranean diet type of approach with a fasting approach. And that's what I do for most of my patients. It works beautifully. And I think fasting is a very important uh, tool that we have, not only just for weight loss, but for other health benefits. And um, especially for um, people who do have that insulin resistance type of pattern um, to their health, um, it's really powerful. And, you know, because guess what? When you're not eating, you're not releasing insulin. And so you give your body a chance to go into more of a fat burning state. And there's different ways to cut calories, right? And so when you're trying to say eat every day and count every calorie, and it can become very burdensome Mm -hmm. and very difficult. And so another way to create a calorie restriction is just to say, hey, when I'm eating, I'm eating, and I'm eating real food, but I'm eating during the six hour window, or whatever. And then hey, I'm not eating for 18 hours. That's my fasting window. It actually frees people's minds a lot and there's less of that burden of counting and you're just creating the calorie restriction in a different way. So what type of fast do you usually recommend? Do you recommend the 16-8 or the, like you said, the 6-18? I'm really bad at math, but. Yeah, no, you got it right. <laughs> my hardest part about fasting is figuring out the, the two windows, but do you recommend daily fasting or longer fasts every so often? It really depends on the person. Um, I find that in general, none of us need to be really eating at night. And so I think it's a great habit, um, you know, just on a daily basis to have some type of discipline as in, okay, you know, after dinner, uh, maybe if you are going to have something uh, desserty, then you kind of have it right around your dinner time. And then having that period of time that you're not eating. And guess what? If you've gone from you know, 8 p.m. until 8 a.m. the next day, you've already done a 12-hour fast. So, you know, I think that it's it's helpful for everyone to, to think of it that way because then it's not as intimidating to say, well, you know what, I just practice a, you know, 16-hour fast or a 14-hour fast, whatever, you know, works for you and your lifestyle. It needs to be flexible and it needs to fit into what's going on in your life. Um, yeah, I typically think that that's a helpful way to be kind of long term. Um, it cuts out on a lot of that nighttime eating, which is typically mindless and unnecessary. Um, and it also um, allows your body to have that time for gut rest. And um, I know you've had a doctor on recently who probably talked about autophagy and benefits of that. And our body and our cells get a chance to heal and do something other than digest when we're, when we're not eating. So I recommend if you don't have any other health concerns and you're comfortable with it, maybe trying like a 12 hour and maybe extending it to 14, 16. But for people who I see who are, um, you know, really uh, struggling and need to lose more weight, 16, eight is kind of the most popular place to start. But that not may not be what we end up doing for during their weight loss phase. You know, that may mm. be more of a maintenance strategy. And we can always slowly extend and maybe work up to 
two or three 24-hour fasts in a, in, a, in a week. I don't recommend people just doing this kind of willy-nilly on their own. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe occasionally it's, it's fine if they don't have any health concerns. Um, the reason why I say that is because a lot of times, uh, well, for all of my patients, I screen for nutritional deficiencies beforehand. You also want to make sure that you're eating a well-rounded diet during your actual eating window, right? So you're not like, developing uh, nutritional deficiencies. But typically, uh, in a a regimen like that, you're not going to. Now, there are some people that do more extended fasts, like three days, five days. Um, No one in my practice is doing that currently. Uh, That's pretty hard to do. Uh, But I do think that, you know, for people who want to do that kind of fasting to be followed along uh, with your with a physician uh, monitoring you would be recommended. Right. When you mention calories, what role do you think calories play? I follow some doctors on Instagram and it's like all calories are created equal. It all just comes down to calories and energy balance. And then others say, no, it matters more of what you're eating versus just the calories. So where do you stand on that? I think both matter. Okay. Uh, but but how you get there is kind of a different story. So, you know, you do want to create a calorie deficit. But like I mentioned, I think sometimes that everyday calorie restriction can be very burdensome. And a lot of people are very hungry (laughs) during that time. Yeah. And I think that when you kind of create this opportunity using fasting, then what happens is when you're fasting, you actually feel less hungry. It sounds strange, but um, something about going into that nutritional ketosis and what that means is your body is now burning fat for energy happens around the 14 hour mark during a fast, you actually feel less hungry. And that's kind of the similar effect that people will say when they do a keto diet, right? They say, Oh, it's great. I'm not hungry. But when you go into nutritional ketosis, you're less hungry. So actually creating that calorie calorie restriction sometimes is a little bit easier. If you fast, and then during the time that you're eating, you're just eating more mindfully during a period of time, you don't have to count your calories. So that's how you're creating a calorie restriction. But I also do believe in the hormonal effect of food. I mean, we can't deny the fact that if we eat 200 calories of Twinkies, our body is going to handle that very differently than 200 calories of broccoli. Yeah. Right? And that's the hormonal effect. So we're releasing insulin. That is a, uh, especially for people who Um, have a problem where their body's not listening to insulin anymore. That's what insulin resistance means. Um, You know, that in itself is going to cause a bigger signal to your body to take that, take this sugar calories from the Twinkies and store it away. So there's a difference when you eat sugars that come with fiber, right? So like when Mm -hmm. we're talking about eating vegetables, um, those are very low in sugar and very high in fiber, Fruit has sugar, but it also has fiber, but it's still going to maybe spike your blood sugar more than vegetables. Um, and then same for whole grains. So so fiber is, is key. Um, and so I do think that uh, what we eat also matters, uh, not only from the standpoint of calories, not only from the standpoint of the hormonal effect that we just talked about, but also from the gut microbiome and, you know, where learning more and more about how that affects our metabolism and our body weight and our risk for diabetes and heart disease. So when we eat more food with fiber, and that's my concern when people do like a carnivore or strict keto where they're 
maybe even eating processed meat, which we know is not great. Uh, but when you eliminate these foods on our earth, like all the greens um, and all the you know different colorful vegetables and fruit that have been put on here on earth for us to eat, we're not taking care of our gut bacteria. And we know that the gut microbiome, I actually have a blog post coming out soon about this that I've been working on to kind of explain this, but um, the, you know, gut health, not only from the standpoint of avoiding constipation and keeping things moving along, we know that red meat increases our risk, uh, you know, and processed meats increase risk for colon cancer. But even putting that to the side, we know that gut bacteria, if we can eat the foods that are higher in fiber and, you know, diets that are higher in vegetables and, you know, these types of things are going to foster and choose out the gut bacteria that actually like to grow and eat that food and grow in that environment. And those give us health benefits that affect our body weight too and our metabolism. So it's all linked. Do you recommend that people take any type of probiotic or are you pretty much of the thought that if you're eating mostly whole foods, a diversity of vegetables, you're probably okay? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. Um, so first of all, yes, if you're eating a diverse range of foods and you're getting lots of fiber, you're getting what are called prebiotics. And mm -hmm. that is what feeds the bacteria, the bacteria in our gut eat or ferment that fiber and actually produce these substances called short chain fatty acids, and those in turn help all those things that we were talking about lower our risk for and help to improve our body weight and all of that. But um, when we are eating those prebiotics, we're selecting out the bacteria, so we don't really necessarily need to take a probiotic. So, a probiotic is a food that is going to replace your gut bacteria with other ones. Now, if you've you know, been on antibiotics, or if you've had a problem with irritable bowel syndrome or something else, you can talk to your doctor. There are particular ones that are approved for those for those indications. But for in general health, if you're eating a diet high in prebiotics, then you can even include foods that have probiotics. So right. things that are fermented. Um, and I'm excited. I just ordered my... Um, fermentation jars on Ooh, Amazon. That's exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, typically uh, yogurt is a good source if someone, you know, does dairy, um, kimchi, miso, um, you know, for any fermented vegetables, uh, you know, kombucha, if someone enjoys that, I don't particularly care for it. But, <laughs> you know, you have to look at what you like. Right. Um, but including those types of probiotics, um, can be beneficial along with the prebiotics. Yeah, it's actually so easy to ferment things. Have you ever done it yourself? So my mom does it and she's been me telling me, but everything she tells me is like, oh, it's so easy. So I was like, I'm just going to order my own stuff and try it now. <laughs> it is. Trust me. I am all about easy stuff. The first time I made sauerkraut, I was shocked by how easy it was and it was so delicious and it lasted forever. So that's great. Yeah, I've been buying stuff so far, but I'm going to try to make it. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. 
Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Where do you stand on the hot topic of gluten? Um, so, you know, to me, gluten is one of those things that gets hyped up a lot. And unfortunately, because I think, you know, a lot of people are struggling and often there's other reasons for their symptoms and then gluten gets blamed. Uh So I do think that it's worthwhile to have if you have ongoing problems with abdominal pain, bloating, you know, if you have iron deficiency, a lot of those things, you should go see your doctor about it and get an evaluation and often blood tests or, um, you know, at at the most, a gastroenterologist can do an evaluation to look for if you have celiac disease. If you have celiac disease, then gluten is a problem and you need to be avoiding it. But otherwise, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, is it a gluten intolerance? Um, Hard to say, right? Because there are other things that could be causing um, problems with bloating. Like if a person has um, irritable bowel syndrome, maybe they're they're struggling with the, uh, maybe they need to under their doctor, try a low FODMAP diet, which is um, types of sugars that could be causing problems in a person's uh, abdominal uh, symptoms. So, you know, to answer your question, I don't think we need to avoid gluten, but I think a lot of processed foods contain it. And so often if we're cutting out gluten, we're also cutting out a lot of those (laughs) processed foods and then we might feel better or we might lose weight. So Right. And usually um, a lot of the sugar you're cutting out as well with the processed foods and the vegetable oils. That's and right. The binders and the filling. I mean, all the crap that's in there. So yeah, it is interesting because it's definitely been poor gluten has been blamed for everything. You know, it's like that's the one cause of all the ailments of society. But cer- certainly, it could be con- a contributing factor, and especially like you said with celiac. But I think. From what I understand and what I've seen with the more research I've done and the more physicians I've followed, the common thread among everyone, even vegans, vegetarians, just seems to be eating mostly plants and whole foods. Yes, I I agree with that. But, you know, if you really find that certain foods bother you and they have gluten, then you, you know, maybe you try them, try to avoid them for a bit. Uh, but, you know, to go completely gluten free is uh, pretty burdensome and actually hard to do because <laughs> it's everywhere and a lot yeah, of things. Yeah. I know, for sure. What are your recommendations when it comes to movement and exercise? Yeah, so, you know, movement and exercise are so important and not the biggest factor for weight loss. And a lot of times mm-hmm. people um, get frustrated or their first comment will be, well, I don't really understand why I'm not losing weight. I'm working out so much. Um, Exercise and movement are very important for other reasons, but they're not a great weight loss tool. So as far as the benefits, you know, we know that they help if you can uh, build more muscle, you're going to have higher metabolic rate that helps you burn more calories at rest. It helps with insulin sensitivity, which is important, especially if you're dealing with the, you know, insulin resistance or prediabetes type of issue. And 
Exercise is important for your cardiovascular health and for your fitness. Um, you know, typical recommendations are uh, to have 150 minutes, or that would be 30 minutes, five days a week of aerobic type of activity, and um, two sessions per week of some type of muscle resistance. Uh, you know, those are great goals, but a lot of times if you haven't been doing much, that can feel so unattainable. I, you know, you typically tell people just try to set small goals, work your way up, and also try to move in every other way that you can. So, you know, things mm-hmm. like if you're working at your desk, get a standing desk, um, take your calls while you pace, um, you know, take a 10 minute break and go Go for a quick walk. It doesn't even need to be all at once, the 30 minutes. It could just be broken up. Uh, Find ways to organically move more. You know, maybe you're Mm -hmm. in the kitchen cooking. uh, No one's watching. You're doing kind of some lunges or squats, you know, Um, just ways to incorporate movement into your life so that it's in your in the forefront of your mind. Like, hey, let me move right now, because we know that sitting and being sedentary is a huge risk factor for um, even things like heart disease and for for diabetes. So movement is very important. Um, Those are the recommendations that I just mentioned to you. Uh, We do have data from the National Weight Control Registry, which looked at people, a group of people who lost weight, and to see who were the people that were most likely to keep the weight off. And the people who did were those that um, that did move. And actually, um, for weight... Uh, loss maintenance and to prevent weight regain, it could require anywhere from 350 to 420 minutes a week. So it's actually much more needed in the weight maintenance phase than just general recommendations. But you know, that's, that's pretty hard to do. But what that means is we need to be moving. Is your first recommendation then for weight loss, it seems that it's changes to diet and nutrition? Yes. It's about, it's about what you put in your mouth. It's about why you put things in your mouth. You know, for all of us, especially right, you know, with everything that's been going on right now, um, you know, why we eat is a huge factor, right? Because there's so many reasons why we eat and whether that's stress that's contributing and maybe we're stress eating or we're having mindless eating. We have to kind of address those issues when because it's not as simple as, you can put anyone on a temporary meal plan, but mm-hmm. but if those drivers of eating are not addressed, then how, how is that a sustainable strategy? So yes, nutrition is important, movement is important, but for for other reasons. Um, and then I would say that you know probably number two after the importance, if I had to rank, um, would be stress because mm-hmm. stress is not only the driver often of our eating decisions and choices, but also um, metabolically speaking, there's a whole cascade of events that happen when we're stressed out that actually cause weight gain and um, hurt our hormonal um, functioning and also um, make us crave more uh, of those comfort foods. That's why they're called comfort foods because they make us feel better in the short term. Definitely. And then what about sleep? What are your sleep recommendations usually? Yeah, sleep is very important. So not only from the standpoint of the number of hours, but also quality. So, uh, you know, typically 
Um, on the observational uh, studies that have been done, uh, seven hours is considered the optimal amount. And people who sleep less than six or more than nine hours actually have a higher BMI. So, you know, sleep is very important. Uh, it has effects on our, on our hormones as well. So stress and sleep both drive up hormones that rev up our hunger. So ghrelin um, levels are, are, are elevated. Um, often we have, there's a hormone called leptin in our body that tells us that we're full and leptin levels may be high, but we may, may not be responding to that. So we can develop leptin. We have leptin resistance that occurs with lack of sleep. You know, the, they've done studies on people who have uh, disruption of their circadian rhythms, right? So people who are night shift workers, right? So the day and night is reversed and it does affect their, their body weight. And even if, you know, they're um, trying to be mindful of what they're eating. So sleep is very important from that aspect. So seven hours is a recommendation. And then often for people who are carrying excess body weight, they might have conditions like obstructive sleep apnea and maybe are not, um, diagnosed with it or may not be aware that they have it. And those are periods of time at night where they're not breathing and they're not getting oxygen to their brain and their body. And that's another stressor and can also be a cause of weight gain or a weight loss plateau. Hmm. Well, just wrapping up here in a minute, you've been so gracious with your time. I'm wondering, do you have any um, insights or suggestions that you make to clients that it's just, they see, I don't want to say it's a quick fix because we already talked about that, but just these bang for your buck recommendations you make that maybe people haven't heard of before. Yeah. So, you know, you want to always make sure that, um, your mindset is of, of one that is whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to make it a lifelong kind of commitment to doing this. So if something looks like something that you would just do for a very brief period of time, then probably need to check in and go, is this something that's really long-term or a strategy? And I would say that partner with somebody like a nutrition coach or a, a doctor who you know does obesity medicine and that's local to you to really kind of find how that maybe could fit into a plan that's long-term because, um, you know, I think it's fine to use, um, say like a tea or something like that as an appetite suppressant, it might help you, but if it's being used in isolation of a comprehensive approach, then it's probably not going to be something that's going to help you in the long-term to actually, uh, achieve the weight loss and actually keep it off. Yeah. It's that idea, I guess, that what you're doing to lose weight, the lifestyle choices and the habits you're making shouldn't look so much different from those you you snap into when you're just trying to maintain the weight, mm. right? It shouldn't be like going from this crazy diet back to something completely different. It's like the weight loss and weight management habits should look the same. Yes, that's right. And and it, and it might be a little bit different as far yeah. as how much you're eating. Um, it might be different as far as if you were on medication when you were losing the weight versus maybe you're on a different one for maintenance. And that does happen. And I always tell people, like, if you have a condition, a health condition that requires medication, say, for instance, like a person who develops low blood pressure, I mean, a high blood pressure at a very young age, <laughs> we're not going to tell them like, well, 
your your time with medication's up now. You you need to go ahead and stop it. So, right. so we have to decide on those things case by case too, if that's something that needs to be done. But yeah, it needs to be something that you can actually incorporate into your life um, for the long term. Well, that leads perfectly into my final question that I ask all guests, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? You know, I think that uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I talk about it a lot for those who follow me. It's really about what is your intention, right? So if you have a particular goal in your mind, and and don't make the, the, the number on the scale the goal, but really if your health investment is, I, I want to be healthy, is every single thing, every opportunity throughout the day, and you're not going to be perfect, and that's okay. None of us are. But every action, every decision, is it something that is an investment? Is it something that's leading you to what you're trying to accomplish for yourself? That's the health investment. And so, you know, every time um, I'm faced with the choice of, okay, well, I'm hungry and I go into my kitchen and I might go and reach for those potato chips that I bought for my kids that are in my pantry versus, you know what, I'm going to grab that, those carrots instead, mm-hmm. right? That, that is a moment when I made an investment. And so if you look at it as these small moments and small opportunities, then we can be building towards that. And that also means that occasionally I can indulge in a brownie because I choose to. But um, and that's not necessarily bad. It's just that maybe that wasn't, you know, for, for the investment. But I think overall, if you are making small decisions every day, then that's working towards your 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 goal. And that's how I view a health investment. Yeah, same. I love that. It reminds me, are you familiar with James Clear's work at all? He wrote Atomic Habits. I have heard of that and it's been on my reading list. Yeah, he's incredible. I haven't read it in its entirety yet. I've just heard him on a few podcasts, but he says something similar. He says, you're constantly casting votes each day for the type of person you want to be. So every choice you make is a vote. So you're just kind of, I like thinking about it just as you were saying, you know, these small choices really do add up and you're constantly casting them. I mean, we eat so many times throughout the day, you know, so it's, you constantly have a chance, even if you have that brownie, who cares? You can turn it around with the next bite you have. Right. No need to dwell on it. No need to stress about it because then that causes even more stress, which we know is not good. Uh, But yeah, it's just adding all those choices up. Exactly. And even when you eat the brownie or the cookie, it was a choice. So Mm -hmm. you make it with confidence, you eat it, you enjoy it, and then you move forward. Exactly. (laughs) I love that. And, you know, health in another way, right? Mental health or health in terms of the enjoyment of life of home-baked cookies or whatever. That's another piece of health, I think. Definitely. We have to make room for them in our lives, but it's just about you have the the power and, and the power to make a choice every moment, every day. Where is the best place for listeners to follow and find you? Sure. So um, I have a blog and um, I send out a monthly newsletter with wellness tips and recipes every week. They can find me at RadiantHealthDallas.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and my handle is at RichaMithilMD. 
And I'm also on YouTube, and I've started putting some videos there with educational topics, as well as uh, recipes uh, that I create with the theme of food is medicine. And that's just Richa Mythel MD. I love that. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. I didn't know that. Congratulations on your videos. That's exciting. Thanks. It's been it's been really fun to do. That's great. That's still an intimidating space to me, but <laughs> and I'm, I didn't know about your blog either, so I'm excited to check that out, especially the article you were talking about that you're writing. Yes. Awesome. Well, truly appreciate your time. I know that you are probably very busy or I don't know, what does quarantine look for you right now for when this episode comes out? I don't know what the state of our country will be, but are you doing virtual consultations mostly or how is your work going? I am actually. um, I uh, have converted all my established patients to telemedicine for now, and that's been going great. Um, And for any new patients, I will be back in the office next week. So we'll be kind of transitioning to that. So um, it's actually been a very busy time for me with quarantine because I've been doing my practice, seeing my patients, and of course, the kids have been home. So homeschooling them. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been a nice time to, you know, catch up with family and uh, do something a little different than, than the usual. Yeah, well, that's a great positive way to look at it. You know, just trying to see the silver linings, I guess, each day. Right, exactly. Well, appreciate you and everything you shared is such a information packed episode. And I'm just grateful to have met you on Instagram. And I look forward to staying connected. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.